Good morning. If you would, grab a Bible. Let's turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke 1. And we'll begin this part of our service in that place. Luke chapter 1. Good to see you this morning, as has been announced. Uh, this is a different kind of service, and uh, this is our fifth Sunday Lord's Supper focused service. Of course, we partake of the Lord's Supper every first day of the week, but uh, the elders have decided that it would be good for us as a congregation if we direct our attention in a more focused way toward the Lord's Supper uh, at this time on the fifth Sunday. And so uh, that's what we will be doing. As Stephen mentioned, uh, we had a fifth Sunday somewhere in there, and there were only uh, maybe 10 of us at the building. The rest of you guys, I don't know what y'all were doing, uh, but uh, we were not able to observe it at that time. But uh, looking forward to this and, uh, and glad that we can focus our attention on what Jesus has done for us. Luke chapter 1 and verse 26. The text says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now this is where the story of Jesus of Nazareth begins. There is an unimportant, overlooked Jewish girl who receives an angelic visitor. And from this moment, her life will change forever, and the baby that she is going to give birth to will completely alter history. I was reading this week about how different people present the good news, the gospel of Jesus. And one of the approaches that, you know, everyone has their own approach and own style and how they present the gospel of Jesus, but one of the approaches that was described in this book that I was reading was talking about Jesus in three forms. The idea of Jesus in the manger, Jesus on the cross, and Jesus as king. And it seemed to me that as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper today, it would really help us to think about those three forms of Jesus, the manger, the cross, and the king. And what I want to do is show you not only how those three all describe Jesus, but then how they are all pulled together in the Lord's Supper and how the Lord's Supper celebrates each of those unique facets of who Jesus is. So if you're wondering what my outline is going to be, I just told you. Manger, cross, and king. So let's talk first about the idea of the manger, which is that Jesus becomes a man. So here in Luke 1.26, he describes how Gabriel comes to visit Mary. And verse 28, he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So he says, Mary, you're going to conceive a child, and not just any child. You're going to conceive a king. And he says that specifically. His name is going to be Jesus, which is a word, the word Joshua, meaning a savior. And also it says, specifically, I'm in verse 32 here, he will be great and will be called son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So I hope you see, even before Jesus is born, there are rumors about his divinity. He'll be called the son of God. And there are rumors about his royalty. He will be a king. He will rule. He will have the throne of his father David. And those rumors are going to swirl around him throughout his life 
to the point that when he comes preaching, he's going to talk about the kingdom of God, to the point that when he is crucified, over his head will be, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And those rumors of divinity are going to to follow him so that people are going to believe about him that he is in a unique way the son of God. And of course, there are some very specific reasons why Mary is told that because the child that's to be conceived in her is conceived of the Holy Spirit. And so he is in a unique way the son of God. Look in chapter 2 of Luke now. In chapter 2, where after... Her term, she is ready for, uh, to give birth to Jesus. In Luke 2 and verse 7, it says, And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph... And the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. So Mary delivers Jesus while outside with the animals. And she lays him in a manger, a feeding trough, because there is no room for them in the inn. Which indicates that these are not important people who could throw their weight around and get a room. Instead, these are people who are just average, poor, and young out of town when the the wrong time just happens to come. And these shepherds are shocked as they're watching their flocks by night, by a visit from angels, and suddenly they hear the heavenly host declaring glory to God in the highest. And they're told, you need to go find out. You need to go see what God has done. There's good news. A Savior is born. But this is the sign. I want you to notice this in verse 12. It says, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. That's an interesting kind of sign, isn't it? Usually signs are big, impressive miracles. This sign is a baby lying where a baby shouldn't lie. A baby in a manger. And the the question behind that is, if God is sending a Savior, the Messiah, why is the Messiah out with the animals? Why is this baby being treated this way? And this is a radical truth that Christianity does not try to sugarcoat. The gospel writers fully embrace it. Early Christians fully embrace it. The idea that Jesus becomes a human being with all the ugliness and blood and sweat and tears and humanity that that implies. He became a baby, just like all of us have been. He became a young man. And he became a full-grown man. He grew up. He got tired. He got hungry. He yelled and cried and sighed. He was a man. And when he was born, he was laid in a manger. John says it this way. He says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is God, but in human flesh. And the question I want to ask for just a moment is... What would we expect 
from God living in the flesh. What would that look like? What would we think would happen if God came and lived in the flesh? Well, first of all, we would expect that he would correct the things that were wrong with his creation and that he would speak to those problems with the authority of the creator. And that's exactly what we see. We would expect God to say, I've got some problems with the way you guys are living. I didn't make you like this. I didn't want you to be this way. Here is the way you should be. So if God were in the flesh, he would not be intimidated by other people. He would not be concerned about earthly systems of power. He wouldn't be bound by the conventions of society. And that is precisely what we see in Jesus. We see Jesus speaking truth and criticism to the power brokers of his day. He doesn't want their power. He doesn't need their power. What he wants is for them to turn back to God. We see Jesus flouting societal conventions like talking with a woman at the well who is a Samaritan when she says, how is it that you're a Jew and you talk to me, a Samaritan and a woman? Jesus flouts the conventions of eating with tax collectors and sinners, having tax collectors in his entourage as disciples, as having women who are considered prostitutes or sinners touching him or following him, even just having women as disciples at all. Jesus is completely unconcerned about what people say about that because Jesus is God in the flesh. And we wouldn't expect God to be intimidated by other humans. We would expect him, if God were to come in the flesh, to teach with wisdom even without a formal education. He would know what he's talking about. And sometimes people are mystified by Jesus because he is a carpenter's son from a backwater place in Galilee And yet he has the ability to teach in a way that amazes everyone, including the hometown folks. And so they ask him questions like, where did this man learn? How did he get these things if he's never studied? And yet Jesus does teach with wisdom, wisdom that fits and applies to you and me today, so that we look back and we say, these words, 2,000 years old, are as if they were just spoken because they speak to our hearts and to our times. They teach us about the dangers of retaliation and revenge. They teach us about the dangers of wealth and greed. They teach us about the dangers of judging other people and comparing ourselves with one another instead of listening to God. The importance of our words, the needs we have to live right. Over and over again, Jesus speaks to us in the way a creator would speak to his creation. This is the way life should go. And if you're wise, you'll listen. If God were to become a man we would expect him to demonstrate incredible power, to have complete control over the creation. And we do see that. We see a a man who has the ability to walk on the water and talk to the storms, to heal bodies and to raise the dead. And Jesus does show that power. And the people around him are so convinced that what they see from him is authentic that they decide to give their entire lives to following him even after he is gone. And they themselves begin to do things that they could have never imagined before knowing Jesus. But I will say that if God were to come in the flesh, there is something that I would not expect. I would not expect him to be lowly. I would not expect him to be humble. I would not expect him to be a servant. I would not expect him to be primarily driven by compassion. The Greeks have a lot of stories where their gods come to earth as men. And, you know, they're kind of disguised so that people don't know what they're really up to. But the Greek gods, they do it to get revenge. Or they do it to advance their agenda. Or they do it to test people. 
But what the Greek gods don't do, they don't ever come to earth to help people, to bless their subjects. They're not interested in helping the people. They're interested in the people serving them. And they're interested in their own good. And so in Jesus, what you see is a lot of what you would expect if God were to take on flesh, but some things you would not expect. And it seems to me that that blend of greatness and humility and lowliness is best symbolized by thinking of Jesus in the manger. God in the flesh, and yet coming to a place that even you and I, who have never been God in any way, would hesitate to put our children in. And that is the greatness and the lowliness in the symbol of the manger. The second thing is the cross, which is the idea of Jesus offering his life. From the very beginning, there are also these whispers of Jesus offering forgiveness. Turn back a page to Luke 1. In Luke 1, in verse 76, this is Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, his prophecy after his son is born. John 1, I'm sorry, Luke 1, 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. So I want you to notice that. He talks about salvation in verse 77, but not just salvation in the temporal sense where we're saved from a threat, an army that is coming against us, a natural disaster, and we are saved at the last moment. Our lives are saved. Instead, he says in verse 77, it is about the forgiveness of sins. And those rumors, those whispers that God is going to act in a new way to forgive sins, they also follow Jesus throughout his life. It is what is declared to Joseph by the angel. She, talking about Mary, will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. So there's a mission here. Do you hear it? That is far beyond a switch in government. You know, the Romans are in charge and we need a different government in charge. Those things happen from time to time throughout human history. This is something deeper and bigger where people can now have real salvation from their sins and the consequences of their sins because of this child that has been born. For even the Son of Man, Jesus has these words, even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus knows that there is going to be a ransom, there is going to be a price, and I'm going to pay it by offering myself. I'm here to offer my life for everyone else, for the people. Let's go over to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. I want you to hear this from Jesus' mouth. John 10, I'm going to read beginning in verse 14. John 10 and verse 14. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, and part of the function of a shepherd, a good shepherd, is to protect the sheep, even if it means suffering or sacrificing your own life. So the wolf comes, and you stand between the wolf and the sheep, and Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep. And he says specifically 
There are things that I'm going to do, verse 17, that I lay down my life that I may take it again. Because I want the sheep to be saved, I will give myself up for them. And that is something I choose to do. I lay it down of my own accord and I take it up again. So Jesus enters Jerusalem knowing what's going to happen there. In fact, he tells his disciples over and over again, I'm going up to Jerusalem to be rejected and to be killed and to be raised the third day. But he does not say, so let's, let's wait around here and not go. Instead, he boldly walks into the jaws of the lion. In fact, he tells his disciples, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus is ready to offer his life. He accepts their ugly words with grace. They conspire against him. He's betrayed by one of his own. They have a sham of a trial. When the trial concludes, they spit on him and they mock him and they beat him. They take his clothes. They take his dignity. They gawk at him and they yell insults at him. And they watch him hang and bleed and struggle and ultimately die. And what Jesus says here is, no one takes my life from me. I know full well what will happen. And I have power to lay it down. And I have power to take it up again. And I want to emphasize, as we think about Jesus offering himself, that he does that for us. Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So by him accepting a curse, he lifts the curse from us. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We sang that in the song, The, the Power of the Cross, that we say. Christ became sin for us. Now, not in every sense, but certainly in the sense that he took away our sin. He laid down his life so that we could be forgiven. We asked earlier, what would we expect God in the flesh to do? And I mentioned that I would not expect, if God were to live in the flesh, that he would be lowly and humble. But I have to say, even more than that, I would never expect, never God to become a human and then to give up his life, to die, and to sacrifice himself for his creation. Now that says some things about God. It says God is deeply concerned for us, that we were in a plight we could not rescue ourselves from, and he was willing to not just say, well, I hope it works out. If there's something I can do, let me know. Wish you the best. I'll be thinking about you. Instead, he comes and he takes that burden on himself and he suffers for us and lays down that life. And that means that we matter. That every one of us matter enough to God that he would do this just for us. It also means that our sins are a big deal. This is the way God says, these are the things that have to happen to forgive sins. So sin is not a small thing that, you know, we all make mistakes. Nobody's perfect. Not a big deal. We all mess up. Oh, it's okay. Instead, sin is such a big deal to God that it required him to make all of this effort and to offer himself 
for us. And the third part of Jesus that I want you to see is the idea of Jesus as king. He offers his life, but on the third day when they come to the tomb, they find it empty. And suddenly they begin to see Jesus in different places. Jesus comes to visit them. They, they touch the marks of the nails and the, the spear in his side where they begin to examine, is this really the man we saw die? They understand that Jesus is no longer dead. He has risen. They watch him ascend to heaven. They hear angels tell him that they're going, he's going to come again. And now, now what? Now Jesus has been here. Jesus has conquered death and, and Jesus is gone. I want you to go with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, the next chapter, the next step happens in Jerusalem where the Holy Spirit descends on the believers and they begin to speak in other languages and the people are amazed and there's a sound of a great rushing wind and so the people all come together. What's going on here? And Peter begins to tell them this is all to do with Jesus, all to do with what you know has happened to him and the aftermath. What does it mean to see these signs and to hear the Spirit in them speaking through them? Acts chapter 2 and verse 32 is where I'd like to read. Acts 2.32, Peter says, This Jesus God has raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. So Jesus has been raised. But what this means when that the Holy Spirit is poured out, he says specifically, look again at verse 33, being exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Jesus has done this. And the fact that the Holy Spirit is here says that Jesus is reigning. He is at the right hand of God. God has made him Lord and Christ. What you see is that this is not the end. Because now all things will be put under his feet. He is Messiah. He is ruler. Jesus has been made king. So God coming to earth was not the end of the story. It was the beginning of the story. And now humanity can submit itself to Jesus as his power and his authority continue to grow. Now, we see some of that. We see people who give their lives to Jesus and say, I want to serve Jesus. I want Jesus to reign in my life. And so we believe and we submit to his rule. But there is a part of the world that does not acknowledge Jesus or his rule, and they reject him. The Hebrew writer talks about that, Hebrews 2.8. He says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. There's part of this that we're still waiting on. Jesus is ruler of the kings of the earth, we read. Jesus rules the nations with a rod of iron, we read. And we don't always see that in terms of submission where they say, yes, I've served Jesus. So as Jesus' followers, we await the time that our brother Richard read about from Philippians chapter 2. The time when every knee bows and every tongue confesses. When all the enemies are defeated, including death, finally, ultimately defeated. So if God were to come to earth and live as a man, it wouldn't surprise us, would it, that he would rule? What is surprising, 
when you think about that, is the patience he has in our present moment when so many refuse to submit to him. I want you to go with me to Matthew chapter 26, and I want us to begin to think about how all this relates to the Lord's Supper. Matthew 26. And I want to turn our attention to how these facets deepen our appreciation of what we're about to do as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Matthew 26 and verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So as Jesus eats the Passover with his disciples, he takes the bread and he declares, This is my body. And he takes the cup and he says, This is my blood of the covenant. Now on one level, on that first level, it reminds us that Jesus had body and had blood. He really did become a man. He really did experience life the way we do. He suffered all the difficulties that are associated with the flesh. But we also see this idea that Jesus offers his life because he says specifically, look at verse 28 with me, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In Luke's account it says, this is my body which is given for you. And he says, this is the cup that is poured out for you. It reminds us of the cross part of the story, that Jesus offered himself and he did it for us. So, he didn't die because he had to. He didn't succumb to old age. He died to save and to cleanse us. And in the Lord's Supper, as we partake, we don't just remember, oh yes, he died. We remember he died for us. But there is also the future reigning aspect, the idea of Jesus as king. Did you see in verse 29? I tell you, I will not drink of this, again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I don't think this is a reference to weekly observance, that he observes it with us as we are going to do shortly. I believe this is a reference to the time when we will truly be with him again, when we partake of what's sometimes called the messianic banquet, that time when we eat and drink with the Lord in reality. What will it be like? to take the Lord's Supper with the Lord. And I will drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So as we take the supper, we acknowledge that He reigns in our hearts and we've submitted our lives to Him. But we also look forward to the time when we will truly be with Him. The one that we most want to see when the faith becomes sight. As Paul says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We look forward. So, as you partake, consider the manger, the cross, the king. Look at what's been done for you. Think of the joy and the freedom you experience now. And look forward to what you'll experience when he comes back. I'll ask the men to come to the front and serve us the supper. I'd like to ask you to turn with me to Titus chapter 2. 
appreciate so much uh, your participation and uh, worshiping, the uh, opportunity to uh, kind of present a different style of, of service and focus on uh, Jesus and the sacrifice he made for us. Appreciate those who are visiting with us. We're glad that you're here. We hope that you feel welcome. And uh, we're excited that you get to hear and know what we're all about, what we love, what we think about, and why we're here, uh, which is what Jesus has done for us. We're glad that you're here. We'd love to get to know you better. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, please stick around. Let us talk with you. And if there's something we can do to help you, please let us know about that. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. The text says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. If you're like me, you think about all of this, about what Jesus has done, and you ask the question, okay, well, where does that lead me? How do I respond to that? What does that mean for my life? And this is a text that helps us to take the story of Jesus and transition into what we need to do differently. And I just want to call your attention to that for just a moment as we uh, offer the invitation this morning. First of all, in verse 12, because the grace of God has appeared, verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and the worldly passions to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The idea here is that we renounce ungodliness. If sin is so serious that it cost God his son, then I can't live in sin. I have to take a definite stand against things in my life and my heart that are wrong. I renounce ungodliness. And I determine I will live self-controlled and righteous and godly in the present age because there is an age to come. And this raises the question, are there things in your life that you need to say no about, that you need to renounce that you need to take a stand against. Please understand that the idea of Titus 2.12 is not strictly that we stand up and say no against other people's sins. Now, sure, there are things to be said about sin generally and sins that we see, but those stands only have any merit if we also take a stand against sin in our own hearts and lives. That's where this begins. So what do I need to say no about to myself? What do I need to renounce as ungodly in myself. Verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we wait for the appearance. I, I mentioned earlier that Jesus ascended and the angels said that he will come again. And so we await his blessed appearing. So my frustrations and my disappointments, my anxiety in this moment in time are nothing compared to what I await so this raises the question, what do I have to look forward to? And am I actively anticipating, thinking, chewing on, being patient for Jesus to return? Sometimes it is awfully easy for us to look around and we only see what we see around us, what's happening in our moment right now. But Christians have eyes for the future because the future will be better than the present. Because someday Jesus will return. So what do I have to look forward to? And verse 14. 
who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So he offered himself to redeem me from the things that I had done that were wrong, my lawlessness. And he offered himself to purify me and to make me a different kind of person, to walk in new life. And so he says there in verse 14, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus died to make me passionate to do good, to change my nature into a different kind of person. And so the question this raises is, what am I doing that is good? Can I look at my day, can I look at my week and say, these are the good things I'm doing? Not just my responsibilities, not just the things that don't have any real moral impact one way or the other, but what am I doing that I can say, that was a good thing, I'm going to try to do good today. So, what do I need to learn to say no about? What am I looking forward to? What am I doing that's good? Those are the questions Jesus' life leaves us with. If the grace of God has appeared, here is where it leaves us. Now the question is, how does that impact your life? And this is a a time that we've set aside to offer the invitation. The invitation is simply for those who want to come to Jesus and have some burden that they want to take off. If you're ready to be free from your sins, Jesus can set you free. He can wash you clean. And so we offer this time, you can come to the front, you can talk to us about how we can help you to do that, to be baptized into Christ, or if you're interested in studying more and learning more about that, we would love to help you do that. This is a time for you to make that known to us. Or it may be that there's a burden on your heart, something you're struggling with, concerned about, that you want us to pray with you, and you want to use this time to let us know about that. We'd love for that to happen. Just come to the front as we stand and sing to encourage you.